0: Now, we're starting a new series today that we've titled Negotiate, Negotiate, and basically we're going to be talking about how do I stand strong in a weak world? How do I stand strong in a weak world? How do I continue to walk out these truths of God in the midst of this pagan culture that I find myself living in? And so today I want to talk about what is truth and does truth really matter? Does truth really matter? So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and if you've been following Christ for any period of time now, you know that something is not right with the pulse of the church in America these days. There is a liberal approach even in churches today that concerns my heart we see churches across the nation becoming more culturally relevant while they pacify people yet ignoring biblical truth that is something we're seeing in our day this cheap watered down easy believe ism Uh, gospel that you're seeing presented today is a concern to my life. All you've got to do is just go to church and you'll be alright. I mean people say, well all you've got to do is just pray this prayer and you'll be alright. What is the prayer? I've never read the prayer in the Bible. Jesus his message was all about come after me, follow me, die to yourself. He always proclaimed a message of discipleship, a message of Going all in. That's the message according to Jesus. But what we find ourselves in today is a man-centered gospel being presented. Uh, It's called humanism. Let me give you a working definition. Humanism says that God made the universe and provided salvation for the happiness of man. Humanism. God He made the universe, he provided salvation, but it's all about the happiness of man. Humanism claims that there's not one way to get to God, thus all roads lead to God. Humanism. So it doesn't matter what path you want to take or what path you're on, just as long as you're sincere is all that matters. Humanism. Humanism says that all things exist for one reason, and it's the happiness of man. So, many of us have come out of a lifestyle trying to fill ourselves with happiness and and pleasure. The word to to use would be the word uh, hedonism or a hedonistic culture. And it's all about self-gratification and and self-indulgence and being self-consumed with those things that really are nothing more than less wild lovers that only produce a little Temporal satisfaction, but then they fade very quickly. Humanism, that's where we find ourselves living. Reality is there has been a great erosion of values over the last 50 years. I'm 52 years old. I'm going to speak to that statement in regards to the last 50 years. The lines between right and wrong have been blurred, and moral absolutes and objective truth is being disregarded, if not ignored, at large, That's what we find ourselves living in. We're living in a world that has not only excused God, but has dismissed God from their reasoning. You see it happening throughout our land. Our children are growing up in a world that has forgotten God's standards. You will not see the Ten Commandments posted in a classroom, posted in a government building. You will not see the Gideon standing outside of a school giving out free Bibles. You will see people being punished for Friday night prayer before a football game. Something has gone wrong. And my concern is as a church, we cannot sit on the sidelines For another passive down while the game of life continues to unfold. We can't do it. Truth has become a matter of taste. Morality is subjective. Evolution is elevated while any talk or teaching about a creator and a creation has been ditched. We got problems going on. Rick Warren made an interesting observation recently. He said, our culture has believed two great lies. The first lie is, if you disagree with someone, you must either fear them or hate them. You'll see people making that argument today in this culture when a liberal agenda is promoted and you see rainbow colors being waved, if you disagree with it, people will say, you're a hater. You're a bigot. That's a lie from hell. That's insane. That's insane. It doesn't mean you hate. The other lie is to say that if you love a person, you embrace and almost endorse anything they believe and do. That's insane. And so we see our culture... Just the pendulum is swinging and people are saying, man, how can I be labeled a hater when all I seek to do is submit to the lordship and leadership of Jesus Christ? Just because you take a stand against something doesn't mean that you hate the person. You may hate the sin, but so does God. So we live in a world of twisted values and corrupt concept. It is bad thinking and bad philosophy, and so if you had to like label our culture, you would say we're living in a post-biblical era or a post-modern world. Postmodernism is a word you'll hear in uh, seminary when you start to talk theology. People say this culture is postmodern. You'll also hear it in philosophical reasoning. Postmodernism. Write this down. Don't forget this. Postmodernism is not. A new philosophy. Postmodernism has been around since the creation of man. When you go back to Genesis chapter 3, when the enemy, the serpent, the snake comes to Eve and entices and tempts her, he poses a question, and the question is this Has God truly said? So, anytime you start to see a negotiation or a compromise or a slander of absolutes, really the fundamental question is Has God really said? Now, the question in Genesis is Has God said? The question, even today, by many, is Is there even really a God? And so, you hear people say, I'm agnostic and I'm um, atheist. There would be no atheist if there was no God. That argument falls apart too. <laughs> Postmodern thinkers do not place their belief system in any one philosophy or any one defined category. Now, follow this when you deal with the reasoning and the philosophies of the day. What do you believe? They can't tell you what they believe. They can tell you what they don't believe in, but when it comes to telling you what they do believe in, they struggle. Their beliefs are all personal and cannot be specifically identified or quantified. Thus, it becomes just a reasoning of the individual. Postmodernists believe that truth is an illusion, and it's only used by people to gain power over others. Thus, truth is an illusion, and it doesn't exist. Postmodern believes that. Postmodernists teach that traditional authority is false and corrupt. They lash out against any type of religious morals and any type of Christ-centered authority. They rebel. There cannot be an authority. If there's an authority, then maybe the, the authority has spoken. If the authority has spoken, maybe he's given certain absolutes. And if there's absolutes, then I can't say that ignorant is bliss. Then I am now held responsible for the way I live and even think. Postmodernists, they define morality as each person's code of ethics. Experience is valued more highly than reason. Truth is relative. Now follow this. Experience is valued greater. It's valued greater than any type of moral code of ethics. It's all experience. It's something I wrote down. If the Bible is not our source for absolute truth and if it is not our supreme authority that drives the way we do life and if personal experience is allowed to define what truth is, then a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is meaningless and is not needed. If experience drives the way you do life. But if there is truth, and if the God of all creation has spoken, and if he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, then the relationship with Jesus is everything. But we live in this culture of postmodern reasoning and humanism where people say it's just one of many options. I want you to get this. Second Timothy three, Second Timothy 3, starting in verse 1. Paul is writing to his young disciple as he mentors him Timothy Timothy is pastoring uh, the church in Ephesus Ephesus is a carnal nightmare Ephesus is a melting pot of philosophical thought Ephesus is a place of immorality adultery and drunkenness Ephesus was a mess so Paul writing to Timothy says this mark this Mark mark, mark this down, write this down, stamp this. Realize this, Timothy, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times are going to come. Mark this, in these last days, there's going to be terrible times. I believe we're living in last days. I don't believe it's long before Jesus returns. But he says, I I want you to mark something down. There's going to be some difficult days. Then he goes on to say this. People will be. It would be wise to circle that phrase, people will be. People. We call them sheeple right here. We're just sheep, but people. Let me tell you what people are going to struggle with. People will be lovers of themselves. There's a term we use called narcissism, where you're so into yourself, where you dig yourself, where life is all about you. I mean, we define intimacy as into me. See, life is good. But it says people will be what? Lovers. They're going to be lovers of themselves. They're going to have a dig me profile. It's going to be about them. Listen to what he says. People will be lovers of money. We're living in such a materialistic age. And people love acquiring stuff, and stuff ends up ruling and dominating people. He goes, you're going to find a lot of people that are lovers of money. There are going to be people that are boastful. Boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. We live in a generation of young people that live with a mindset of entitlement. I deserve, you deserve a lawnmower and a can of gas, bro. You deserve a weed eater. When I was growing up, my dad, he wasn't exactly politically correct. He would have slapped me. Hey, 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 hey! Listen, all them kids I'm going to school with—fads of my day back in the '70s was Izod. If you had Izod, you had some glue, and then Adidas came out with some leather tennis shoes that had three green stripes. And if you had a pair of those, you were probably a kid from the country club. If I would have told my dad, let me tell you what I deserved, Dad, he would have slapped me. I'm nine years old. You know what I deserved? Whew. Let's go. In the summer, go where? Grab that sheetrock bucket of mud, son. Grab them corner feed. Throw them on the back of the truck. We got to go. Where are we going to eat lunch? Lunch. There's two packs of saltines and some potted meat. Lunch. I deserve. I don't eat stuff like that. I'm better than that. Then guess what? Do without. But we've got a generation growing up, they're disobedient to their parents. They do not respect authority. They're not honoring. And and if they don't honor you at home, there is no chance in hell they're going to honor the teachers and coaches they've got. People will be ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutals, lovers of pleasure. Hey, y'all going to the movie, y'all going to the beach, y'all going to the ball game, y'all, that's the way people think. If we're not going to do something, life ain't fun. Lovers of pleasure, we're addicted to pleasure. Robbie Zacharias does an incredible teaching on the problem with pleasure because we become just so accustomed to having our needs met. It's all about us, there's no responsibility. Listen to what he says they love pleasure rather than loving God. One of my Buddies in his church. I sent him a note the other day. Man, we, we went there two weeks ago because we went kayaking. We went there last week because I, I went to play golf. And I went, I said, is church and fellowship just one of many options in your economy? I'm gonna love you like a son. But but is Sunday just a day of recreational activity? Or does the scripture really say it's important not to forsake the assembly and fellowship so that you can keep growing? You've got to have fellowship, whether it's Saturday or whether it's Sunday or so, You've got to have some fellowship. It's important. Are you saying that if you're not here on Sunday, you, don't, you really don't love Jesus? No. No, but I'm saying we need to check our priorities and see where our values are. It goes on to say, always learning. We live in a culture, listen to what he said, they're always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. There's more books being written today than ever before. The convenience of dropping a book on my Kindle is within seconds. People are always reading, reading articles and reading, they're always learning But never able to come to submit to and acknowledge and respect and adhere to the truth. Listen to what he goes on to say. They're men of depraved minds who oppose the truth. The word oppose there is the word that means to make war with the truth. You're in opposition. You're at war with it. Now, this is a blueprint layout of 2015 United States of America. I think 2 Timothy 3 speaks aloud of the culture in which we find ourselves. Now, David Bowl wrote an article a few years back called Hanging by a Thread. And what he did was he listed seven value statements of the baby boomer generation. If you were born between 1946 and 1962 or 1964, raise your hand. Eight, there's a lot of us in here, right? Quite a few. So, 1946 to 1964 is considered the Boomers, the Woodstockers, the Hendrix, the Cream, Doors, Joplin, Beatlemania, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and chilling. It was a culture that absolutely went nuts. So when you look at the boomers, they tried 50 years ago to redefine what truth and morality is. And the boomers broke away from traditional values and they introduced these new freedoms that they wanted to promote with enthusiastic just rebellion down in their soul. Remember? Remember? Politicians educators, newspaper, media began pushing and promoting these kind of ideas or values, if you will. Listen to these seven value statements of the boomers. Number one, a value statement that came out of the boomers that was pushed to the nth degree is personal happiness in life is the main goal. Self-fulfillment and independence are the highest goals for any person. Hugh Hefner's philosophy became... The reasoning of man, if it feels good, then do it. If if personal happiness is the ultimate goal in life, then even as Solomon in his madness would conclude, eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow we die, who cares? But there's more to life than that. Number two, they said marriage for life is old-fashioned and outdated. I want you to see this slide, but they went on to say that divorce is not harmful and should be encouraged if couples do not feel happy or compatible. And some of you find yourself divorced because you were married to a person that bought into these value statements and they didn't care if they left you and the kids behind. All they cared about was their personal pleasure and self-fulfillment And I know some of you sitting here that were married at times to some bozos. (laughs) But when you start to look at the push of the boomer mindset and the Beatlemania, Roe versus Wade is introduced. Contraceptive now is on the widespread, being legalized in the late 50s and 60s. And there's this push that you can go have fun The divorce rate in the late 60s and early 70s skyrocketed. I started researching who was the first ever divorce lawyer. Do you know back in the 40s and 50s, you didn't have divorce lawyers. You had to have a strong case if you were going to get divorced because something in the DNA even of our nation said that covenant mattered. But we reduced that down so now it doesn't matter because one of the value statements is marriage for life is old-fashioned. Here was another one. Traditional roles in the family are outdated. Women should be encouraged to pursue careers, personal fulfillment. It's unfair to view men as leaders of their homes. Can I tell you something? This is not a chauvinist statement. When God laid out the blueprint in Genesis 3, Man is the one that after God extracted the rib and created woman, God gave him the power to name. He said, Whoa, man. That's what he called her. He later calls her Eve. He's the one that named the animals. God told him, Hey, you've got assignments, you've got responsibility. You're to lead, not to rule, not to dominate, not to manipulate, not to control, but to lead. To lead. And even after the serpent comes and deception is birthed in the hearts of both, and they eat from the forbidden fruit, God comes to the man and says, where are you? Did you check out of the assignment? You're to be leading that woman and loving that woman and protecting that woman. He didn't come to Eve and he didn't scorn Eve. He looked at Adam. You're the one that had the assignment. You're the one that I place leadership on. So when we say that, that, that this whole move was about saying that traditional roles are outdated, the blueprint of Genesis 3 is alive today. Are men better than women? No. Do we have different roles and responsibilities? Yes. Are we all fearfully and wonderfully made? Yes, has God called us as men to man up, to take the responsibility of leadership in our home seriously? Yes, when you love your wife like Christ loves the church, I can promise you she does not desire to rebel. But when you've checked out and you're not anteing up and you're not leading, you put her in a tough position. Number four, they said teenagers should make their own choices. Parents should let their children go as they begin adolescence. Teenagers can make their own independent choices. (laughs) I was reading a Christian psychology book years ago, right after I got saved. And this dude that is very respected said, do you realize that most boys between the ages of 15 and 18 have a sexual thought about every seven seconds? I'm like, I'm going to give him freedom to make his own choices? (laughs) How many of y'all done some of the stupidest things you ever did in life between 15 and 18? Aren't you glad... Aren't you glad that the Bible doesn't say train up a child in the way they should go until they're 12 and tell them to go raise? But that was a value statement of the boomers. Teenagers, man, let them go. Five, they said there's no such thing as absolute morality. Listen to this one. They went on to say we encourage each individual to experience sexual freedom. This includes pre Marital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality, tolerance for any lifestyle should be accepted and almost applauded. This was a value statement of the twisted culture of that day. And can I tell you something? It still permeates our culture. It's sad. Number six, question all authority at every given opportunity. Question it. Push against it. Seven, eliminate the influence of Christianity from public life. And again, no Bibles, no Ten Commandments. You can't talk about God. You can't pray. You can't take a Bible as a teacher and lay it on your desk. You could be penalized. You could be fired. That's twisted. That's twisted. And this whole political mindset that governs so much of this nation is so stinking liberal makes me sick. But if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and heal their land if my people is what God says. So it's time for his people to stand up. It's time for his people to go against the flow of the cultural chaos. It's time for his people. Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 says this, don't let anyone lead you astray. Don't let anyone lead you astray with empty philosophy and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking, from the evil powers of this world. Don't let anyone lead you astray from Christ. That's the reason we promote so much, like even Paul's writings to Timothy, study to show yourself approved as a workman who does not Need to be ashamed, one who can rightly and accurately handle the word of truth. Acts seventeen eleven says, those in Berea were so much more noble-minded than others, they examined the scriptures daily, carefully to see if what was being taught was truth or not. Even 1 Thessalonians says, abstain from every form of evil, cling to that which is good. How do I know what evil is and what good is if I don't have a standard to measure it against? So there's no excuses in being led astray with empty philosophy and bad theology and high-sounding nonsense. We don't have to go there anymore. What does the Bible say about compromise? The word compromise means to erode or diminish. When you see that word compromise, it's erosion. It's a diminishing. It means to make accommodation for someone who does not agree with an established set of standards or rules. I'm compromising. Compromise will expose what your values are. Compromise is a death word. Compromise is a word of defeat. Compromise seeks to eliminate objective blueprints. Once we conclude that Only subjective reasoning can be used. It leads us to a life of chaos. like what Gandhi said. Gandhi said, all compromise is based on give and take. But there can be no give and take on essentials and the fundamentals. Any compromise on the mere fundamentals is called surrender, and it's all give and no take. All give and no take. So what are you willing to, to die for? What are you really willing to shed blood over? What is the echoing statement of your life that others hear daily when it comes to the values that you truly live by? Make sense? Make sense? And so once we pledge our allegiance to the Lamb and refuse to compromise with the values of this world, you're going to be attacked. It's impossible to experience or embrace true life when divine absolutes do not exist. Did you get that? It is impossible to experience or embrace true life when divine truth or moral absolutes do not exist. Has God spoken? Yes. What has he said? It is our responsibility as disciples and followers to want to know every saying that Rabbi Jesus uttered. It is our responsibility. It is an invitation from the Lord, but it's a responsibility to say, I want to know what you have to say. Psalm 119, David penned it this way in the first three verses. He goes, how joyful and how blessed is the man. Sounds like Psalm 1, how blessed is the man. How joyful is the man who who is blameless before the Lord. Blameless meaning he's walking with integrity and purity, meaning when you throw stuff of blame accusation against him, it doesn't stick. How blessed and joyful is the man who's blameless? You you, you throw statements and condescending negativity and it doesn't stick. He goes, how joyful or blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord? Do you preach a message of law or grace? We preach the grace of the gospel. But whatever the law required, grace inspires us even to do more with the Spirit of God living inside of us. But when he talks about the law of the Lord, he's talking about the Ramah sayings and the statements of God. He goes, how blessed and joyful and full and content is that man. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies. How blessed are those who seek him with all their heart. They do not compromise with evil. They they don't see how close to the edge they can get. They they stay away from bad playgrounds and playmates and play toys. They're aware of their arenas and their associates as well as the appetites of the flesh that can take them down. They don't compromise with evil. They walk in his ways. Is that not good? I want to be a, a righteous man. I want to walk in the holiness of God. So refusing to compromise requires a life of submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ, regardless of what the world's values are. John chapter 8, Jesus said, He who belongs to God hears and obeys. Hears and obeys. He who belongs to God hears, listens, and then he obeys it. He implements it. it. It is part of his application. James would say, don't just be a hearer but be a doer as well. That's the emphasis. John chapter 10, Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. There's so many people in the South that claim that they're Christians, but when it comes to listening and obeying and when it comes to following, there's a disconnect. Now, MacArthur got blown up years ago, John MacArthur, when he wrote the book, The Gospel According to Jesus. But John MacArthur came out and basically said, if Jesus is not Lord of all, I question if he's Lord at all. You see, when we say that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, what we're saying is the names given to Christ throughout the pages of Scripture is that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means master ruler, authority, and the one in control. Jesus is the New Testament form of Yeshua, Joshua, which means God is my salvation. Christ means the anointed one sent from God. So, when we say that he is the Lord Jesus Christ, what we're saying is, the anointed one sent from God, the Christ, has provided deliverance and salvation to save me from the pit of hell, but to save me to an intimate relationship with him, so that now the lordship of Christ can control me meaning he's my authority so if you've walked an aisle saying I know him as Savior he doesn't divide who he is if you say hey I, I, I met Tim the dad No, you didn't meet just Tim, the dad. You met Tim, the husband. You met Tim, the son. You met Tim, the follower of Jesus. You just can't meet just part of me. If you meet me, you meet me. And if we say that we're responding to the gospel and we meet Jesus, we have to meet the fullness of who he is. Make sense? Come on. So the gospel of Jesus is costly. If any man wishes to come after me, let him deny himself daily and take up his cross and follow me. But the cheap grace of the compromised church in America today doesn't even mention repentance and lordship. It doesn't say that you have to turn and unplug from these less wild lovers. It doesn't say that you've got to come to Jesus only. It's a bad deal. I'm reading a book right now called When a Nation Forgets God by Erwin Lutzer. When a Nation Forgets God. And what he basically does in his book is he's extracting different thoughts of what do we learn from the church in Germany during the Nazi regime under Hitler. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Niemöller were two outspoken evangelicals during that day. Back in the 1930s, when Hitler comes in and the government is overtaking and the power control and the manipulation and the domination, Niemöller and Bonhoeffer said, we're going to stand and we're going to continue to stand on truth. It is better for us to obey God than to fear man. So 2,000 pastors get together and they're like, we're in. But as the tension mounted and as the conflict increased, only Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Niemöller continued to stand. Niemöller opposed Hitler. Later that day, a bomb exploded in his church quarters. They were under attack. Bonhoeffer would eventually, as a young man, not even 40, be hung and executed because he would not denounce his faith in Christ and he would not submit to the political harshness of the power uh, trip that Hitler was on. So Erwin Lutzer is looking back of what do we learn when a nation forgets God? And it's a phenomenal read. And I'll be sharing some of that over the next weeks. But in that book he kind of uh, echoes what Bonhoeffer and Niemöller came up with in regards to eight statements regarding the confessing church versus that of the compromising church. He's like, these eight statements were the confessing church, the committed church, the sold-out church, the we're going to follow Jesus, come hell or high water church. But here are some observations from the compromising church compromising the eroding the diminishing the accommodate whatever so listen to these the confessing church declares that jesus is lord of all back to psalm 24 kind of thinking the earth is the lord's and the fullness they are in and bonhoeffer said jesus is lord of all romans 1 the heavens declare the glory of god and it's God's world. The compromising church accommodates Christ to fit culture. That's happening in the States right now. The confessing church will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. It's all about submitting to the Lordship of Christ. The compromised church will say, Where can we fit Jesus into what we're doing? Steve Trailer posed the question the other day. He was meeting with some men, and Steve said, I got a question for you. You know, you read this that God's got a wonderful plan for your life. You believe that? I said, no. Let me tell you why God's got a wonderful plan. Your life is not the important piece of it. Will you submit your life to the Lord's plan? As soon as you start to emphasize the Lord has a wonderful plan for my life, I start to become a little too egotistical thinking that the gospel is for me. God's got a wonderful plan. Will you submit your life to it? Christ has an incredible plan. It may cost you your life. You may become a martyr. I may become a martyr in this generation. We don't know. But the confessing church says Jesus is Lord of all. Number two, the confessing church holds true to the word of God in spite of opposition. It does not bend or negotiate the absolutes. The compromising church will modify the word of God because of opposition. We will not be known as a church that will a la carte scripture, meaning we'll take a little bit from here and a little bit from there to build our argument. We believe in expository study and expository proclamation, meaning we're not going to a la carte the word of God to appease anybody. When I read this book right here, it is a confrontational book of love. With a desire of bringing about deeper transformation and maturation in my journey, so I will become the man that God desires me to be. Let me finish. The confessing church puts the kingdom of God above their culture, the compromising church puts their culture and society above the kingdom of God. The confessing church alters their methods of preaching. The compromising church alters the message they preach. The confessing church realizes that methodology can change, but theology does not change. A compromising church will alter their theology to fit in. It's not good. The confessing church desires the praise of God. The compromising church desires the praise of man. Galatians 1.10, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? If I was seeking man's approval, I could not be a servant of Jesus Christ. The confessing church is a remnant in the minority of the church and state. The compromising church is a majority in the mainstream with the church and state. This was happening back in the days of Niemöller and Bonhoeffer. It was great battle and tension. It's happening today. The confessing church is penalized at times by the state where the compromising church is applauded by the state. The confessing church will speak the truth with power. The compromising church conforms to those in power. This is where our nation is heading. And so as we... Dive into this series on negotiate. Standing strong in a weak world. 1 Peter 3.15, sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts, always ready to give an answer for the hope that we have within us. My desperate prayer for each and every one of us is that we would go all in. That we would stop negotiating. We would stop compromising. That we would drive the stake in the ground and resolve, I will be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because I will tell you today, the cross Loganville is a confessing, committed church who refuses to compromise and negotiate the absolutes of God. We will not apologize for who we are. We will not. That message will not change. It will not change. The amount of money and the amount of resources... It may determine how many people we get to share that with, but it's not going to determine the message that we get to share. Let's walk with Jesus. I'm a member of the confessing, committed church of Jesus Christ. I pray that you are. If you haven't surrendered, if you haven't really just driven that stake in the ground and said, hey, I'm going all in, David, they will never regret it, brother. Seeing the life change with you guys blows my mind. Seeing the life change with you guys, Bobby Shelley, and God is doing the work, blows my mind. And there's so many stories of people saying, you know what, I'm repenting and I'm driving it in the ground. I will confess the lordship and declare him with my life. His values become my values. I will now live a sanctified life set apart into the things of God. Richard, we will never, never regret it, brother.